If you have a Bible with you, you may like to turn to the book of the Revelation and the sixth chapter, Revelation chapter 6, and we'll read the whole chapter together. This is God's Word. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us! And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath 
of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Just a prayer together. Father, we thank you that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. We want to thank you today for your amazing grace. We never found you. You found us. And we thank you for your great salvation. We pray today to hear your voice. We pray that you'll give us the ear of young Samuel, that we would be saying in our hearts right now, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many people from an atheistic standpoint and with an atheistic agenda are risking everything for the present and the future on the basis of belief. Not a proof, a belief. And the belief is that we are uncaused by any intelligent being. Dawkins, who is well known for his atheism, he believes in ABGism, which is anything but Godism. And Dawkins thinks everything is an accident, it's a fluke, the whole caboodle. Now, Dawkins and others like him are believers in the sense that they don't believe God did it, but something else happened. They believe life is pointless. They believe life is meaningless. They believe that we just happen to be here and they are prepared to live and die on that assumption, on that belief. It's a very high risk to take. It's a very high price to pay for mere conjecture. They would want to tell us that all you and I have is our experience. So make the most of whatever experiences you have while you can. But I want to let you know, in the end, it adds up to nothing. Henry Ford once said, history is bunk. Shakespeare, he put it in these words, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. If you prefer a more up-to-date Bertrand Russell, you want to know what life is? It's triviality for a moment. And then, nothing. I don't know about you, but when you listen to these guys, it's so very depressing. But is that the truth? They believe it is. But we know it isn't. Because God has spoken. Thank God he's spoken and he's given us his absolute authoritative word in the Bible. He tells us that history is linear. It's going somewhere. Time actually had a beginning and it will have an end. History is heading straight like an arrow, the Bible would tell us, for the day of the Lord. The final showdown. Now, not all of us may agree with that this morning. 
But nobody can argue against the fact that the Bible teaches a view of history from the first verse in Genesis to the last verse in the book of the Revelation. God created everything in the beginning and to God we will all have to give an account at the end. That's where we're at in these studies this morning. We're in the book of the Revelation. We don't often visit it because it's not easy stuff. We're looking at the second of seven visions that are brought before us in this much neglected and let's face it, highly controversial last book of the Bible. The second vision, which is also the second division of the book and it covers chapters 4, 5, 6 and 7 we've already looked at chapter 4 I'm not going to go over it don't worry the vision of the throne a glimpse of the throne introduced us to the picture of God the creator occupying the throne of the universe chapter 4 in chapter 5 we looked at the vision of God the redeemer in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ Symbolized as a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, slaughtered as a lamb. Jesus, we discovered last evening, was the only person in the whole universe who was found worthy to break these seals and open the scroll that was in the hands of the one who occupied the throne. This scroll, we came to the conclusion, contains the plans and purposes of Almighty God for everyone and for everything, everywhere. It contains, as one commentator has put it, the title deeds of the world. Only Jesus is the mediator between God and men. Only he could do such a thing. Only Jesus had the credentials to execute the plans of Almighty God. Now, what we have now in chapter 6, if you're still with me, is the opening of the first six of the seven seals from that scroll. These seven seals don't represent seven different stages in the unfolding of human history. They're not seven successive eras with their own particular characteristics. They represent those things that are sure to take place throughout the entire history of the human race, sometimes simultaneously, oftentimes repeatedly. So let's look at the first one, the four horsemen. Now we're not looking at a bunch of cowboys here. This is symbolism, okay? The four horsemen. I want to put the opening of the first four seals of the scroll under this one heading of the four horsemen because there is an inner unity marking them all. As these four seals are opened, they provide us with pictures that are apocalyptic, remember, and symbolic, but they're very, very real. And the message of all four of them seems more credible, perhaps, in the 21st century than ever before in human history. With all our expertise, with all our technology, people living in our era, we can probably see these pictures in a much clearer way than people did in the 18th century or the 16th century or the 10th century BC. Already. John writes, listen, 
I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. He's given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. That's the picture John sees. The lamb, through his spokesman, one of the living creatures, is inviting the rider on this horse as he will do the other three riders to come. The Lord Jesus is not inviting John to come. It's very easy to get mixed up with that when you're reading a passage and thinking about it. He's not inviting John to come. He's inviting through the four living creatures, the four horsemen of the apocalypse to come. And right away you get the strong sense of Jesus controlling what's happening. Don't miss that. He's the one calling the shots. That's the message of the passage. The lion who is a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, is the one worthy to take the scroll and open the seals. That's what he's doing. He's got all authority in heaven and on earth. He's got sufficient power. He's got such absolute authority that he controls the unleashing of a series of calamitous events on planet earth. Everything that happens is under his control. Even the mayhem caused by these horses and their riders, is under his control. And it would be very easy to think this rider on the white horse with a crown on his head, that's Jesus. No, it's not. If you want a picture of Jesus on a white horse, riding as a conqueror to conquer, you need to go to Revelation chapter 19, and you'll see him there. This is not Jesus. It would be very unlikely for Jesus to open the seal and through his spokesman, the first living creature, to invite himself to come. I mean, that would be nonsense. This rider and his horse, together with the other three riders and their horses, represent a quartet of evil aimed against the peoples of the planet and in particular God's people. But it's all under Christ's control. That's the point. This quartet of evil is allowed to wreak havoc in every sphere of human life, as we'll see, in terms of conquest and war and famine and death. We know from elsewhere in the book of the Revelation that throughout the Christian era, Jesus, yes, he goes forth conquering and to conquer. Yes, he's accomplished redemption and he goes forth to apply it to the hearts of men and women and young people all over the world. From the day of Pentecost onwards, he rides through the book of the Acts, if you like, and to the ends of the earth and on the, on to the end of time and he's building his church. That picture of Christ on the white horse is there in chapter 19. Don't lose sight of that. That's a great picture. He's doing it to gather a great multitude that no man can number out of the world, his redeemed ones. But in chapter 6, the picture of the white horse and his rider is very, very different. Who is he? Now I'm simply going to stick to the main line of understanding here. This horse and his rider represents an antichrist 
figure. The rider of this particular horse, he has a world vision. He's a false conqueror. He's bent on world conquest. Just use your mind a wee bit. You could think of some of the great world empires that have come and gone, and you could fit them with great ease into this picture. Take the Roman Empire with all its mighty legions. It was all the go in John's day, and the victorious generals, when they won their battles, they rode into Rome. Why did they do it? They rode in on white horses. But very easily to think of that, very easy. It's a very fitting picture here of a mighty conqueror, but empire building and conquest has characterized the history of the world. It happened before the Romans. I mean, you could think of people like Alexander the Great. He fits into this picture. He sits down and weeps because he's nothing else to conquer. You can think of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, if you like. During the last century, there will always be a new rider on a white horse going out to deceive the nations. Who is he today? Well, you want to guess? What about Mr. Putin? He's in this kind of mold. He wants to conquer not just the country he's after. He wants to go further than that. Somebody with expansionist views, standing in opposition to Christ as king, totally against the kingdom of God. That's what this rider and the horse is all about. He goes forward to deceive others by proclaiming an alternative to the truth. This vision throws up a picture of aggression and conquest. World dominion seems to be the goal of this rider, whoever he might be, in whatever century he might appear. Could be anything from materialistic consumerism or atheistic communism, international terrorism, Islamic fundamentalism, and everything in between. Anyone proclaiming that they've got the answer to the world's woes. But the good thing is, Jesus is controlling it all. You come to verse 3. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. And I want you to note that this rider was given power to do what he did. Who gave him the power? Jesus gave him the power. The idea of Jesus in control, there it is again, stamped on everything that's happening. And what did the rider of this horse do? He was responsible for bringing God's judgments on the earth in the form of bloodshed caused by warfare. Not just conquest, slaughter. This is not some kind of a bloodless coup we're reading about here. This is about the shedding of blood from start to finish. He's given power to take peace from the earth. I was walking down the wee village where I'm staying at the moment thanks to these two good people here who are looking after us as if we're the king and the queen, by the way. But just down at the bottom of the hill, I noticed there's a wee, mo a wee monument, sorry. There's a wee monument there and it talks about may peace prevail in the world, if only. This fiery red horse and his rider represents anarchy, strife, Conflict, 
war. I don't know who it was who wrote these words, but the history of the world, he said, is the history of warfare. I don't need to elaborate on man's inhumanity to man. We're more than familiar with it. Human beings made in the image of God, fallen human beings. We do to each other what the animals wouldn't do to each other. And yet you saw some people saying, I don't believe in sin in the human heart, really. As we sit here in this building, there's a slaughter going on all over the world in terms of warfare, and it will never cease until Jesus comes. You read in verse 5, the Lamb opened the third seal. I heard the third living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a black horse. This rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and don't damage the oil and the wine. What an interesting phrase to end with. What are we meant to see in this picture? The language suggests the black horse and rider represent period of famine, economic hardship, social inequality. It's drawing our attention to rocketing inflation without reading too much into it. Poverty, injustice, all that goes with these things. And yet in the midst of these dreadful conditions, there are still those who can get what they need as suggested in the mention of the oil and the wine not being damaged. So the picture you have is the rich can still get their luxuries while the poor are left starving to death on the same planet, sometimes in the same country and sometimes even in the same community. Life for many people in our world today is a struggle. Jan and I have had the privilege of being in seven, several different countries in the world. We don't know we're living here. We really don't know what we're living. Pay a visit to India sometime. What about North Korea? What about Africa? What about South America? And there are countries now getting much nearer to home. Then you read... When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Rider was named Death. Hades was following close behind him, given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword and famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. The word for pale here is chloros, from which we get chlorine. And it means a green, a sickly green, the green of impending death. You talk about somebody looking green around the gills. I don't know whether you do that in England or not, but they do that in Scotland. And when you're talking about somebody like that, you're not saying that person is the picture of health. It's the very opposite. Sick unto death. The Black Plague wiped out 25 million people throughout Europe. Not to mention the Bubonic Plague that wiped out 10 million people in the Far East in the late 19th century. And we talk very much today about endemics and we speak about pandemics. This pale horse and his rider seem to be a reference to plague and disease that bring in their wake, death and the grave. Mention is made of a quarter of the earth killed by sword, famine and plague and by the metaphorical wild beasts of the earth. This is not necessarily, brothers and sisters, one selected event in history. This is many events that have happened. At the present time, there are those who are warning of all sorts of dangers, balance of nature, loss, polluting the atmosphere, climate change, wiping out the rainforests. 
We are a planet in crisis. This book is not out of date. Perhaps as never before, we're in a mess. And it's this that John sees as these seals are opened. It's a picture of one calamity after another, growing in intensity as the end draws near. He sees death on a massive scale. That's exactly what's been happening throughout history. But towards the end of time, the danger of any or all of these things coming our way on this planet could very well intensify and increase. I'm not seeing that as a pessimist. I'm seeing that as trying to understand Revelation chapter 6. But what you want you to remember is that the worship scenes we looked at in chapter 4 and chapter 5, they're going on. They haven't ended, nor will they end. And this, what we have been considering, chapter 6, is something else that's beginning and it's gathering a momentum and it will never end, far from it. But one day, it will end. We must understand that the Lamb is reigning in heaven at the same time as all this chaos and all this trouble are unleashed on the earth. It's the Lamb who initiates, controls, interprets what's happening throughout the ages of history. This is all his story. None of what's pictured here takes place outside the absolute sovereignty of God. The world complains when God interferes. It complains even more so when he doesn't interfere. God's in control of all things. I hope you believe that. He's calling the shots. I hope you can see that. So the first point covers the four horsemen. I've probably said enough. You should come back this afternoon instead of having a wee siesta. And we'll do a few more. But no, I'll give you the rest. Because we'll go to Scotland tonight, okay? That's north of the border. This chapter also talks about the faithful martyrs. Did you notice it? You come into the opening of the fifth seal, we're reminded of the fact that in the midst of all the pain and all the suffering that's characterised life in the earth through the centuries and will continue to characterise life in the earth, there is in a narrower sense another form of pain and suffering being experienced by the redeemed people of God. Christian community is not to be surprised that such things as war and famine and plague and death should occur in a fallen world. We are not to be ignorant of these things, nor are we immune from them, nor are we isolated from what is happening to our fellow human beings. We live in the same planet, we breathe the same air, we share the same struggles, but there's another dimension to all of this. It is a fact that under certain political regimes, under certain religious leaders and laws, the Christian church has suffered and will suffer over the centuries. Followers of Jesus are made the scapegoats of society, shunned by local communities in so many places, often prohibited from opening their mouth and sharing their faith, even gathering one or two people around them to read the Bible together, rejected by their families. They're often prohibited, harassed, intimidated, and discriminated against. And we think... It might never happen to us. Be very careful. We have been there before and God might bring us back there again. 
God's people are threatened, persecuted, killed in the most horrendous of ways. A long time ago now, we paid a visit to the Ukraine. We met with a group of people. We were taking medicines, we were taking food, we were taking Bibles, and we met a wee man called Ivan Daniluk. He was an elder in a local church in Chernovsky in southwestern Ukraine. He invited us for a meal. We're in his living room, and I saw this plaque on the wall. And I said to his niece, Natasha, who was sitting beside me translating, that say? It's in Russian, isn't it? If it was Romanian, I could have had a guess, but it's in Russian. What's it saying? Oh, she says, I'll get my uncle Danny Ivan to, to, to tell you what it means. So he started to tell us. You know what happened to this wee man? He was preparing children's materials, Christian materials, for children, young people in the Ukraine and Moldova, northern Romania. The KGB caught him. Prison. One year. He did his year. They said to him as he was going out, Ivan, you do what you did before you come in here and you'll be back in here, son. What did he do? He went for a printing press. He started to do what he did before he came in the first time. They caught him. Two years in prison. Two years are up. As he's going out the door, Ivan... You do what you did when you came in here before and you'll be back in here. What did he do? What would you have done? What would I have done? He went for a printing machine and he started to do it all over again. They caught him again. Five years. He serves his five years. Ivan, you do what you did before and you'll be back in here. But as he got out, Gorbachev came to power and he brought a bit of peace to the whole area. But the church gave that wee man a plaque to stick in the wall. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That's the stuff he was made of. And this has been God's people across the world suffering again and again and again, as far as I know, there isn't one Islamic republic in the world where Christians can worship and witness with perfect freedom. Look at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal and he saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained, they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. What is John seeing here? He sees, as it were, the souls of martyred saints under the altar. Those who came from a Jewish background and knew their Old Testament would have understood a wee bit of that language. The altar in the Jewish Faith was the place where they offered sacrifices during the days of the tabernacle and the temple and to be there under the altar probably means they were saved and safe and secure now having sacrificed their lives but we can't be sure that is the exact meaning of it. That's why we mustn't be overly dogmatic when we're preaching the book of the Revelation. Those believers who had been slain because of the word of God and the faithful testimony they maintained, they're alive. 
That's the big point. They're alive. They're well. They're in the presence of the Lord. And what a comfort for their family and friends to read that. The white robes probably speak of purity or victory or both. Those who had died for their faith had not been defeated by their foes. The martyr's death only ushered them into enjoying the place of highest privilege. And they're crying out with a loud voice, how long, how long? As I understand it, they're not crying out for indiscriminate revenge, but simply for justice for those who are hated and hounded in the world as you and I sit here at this very moment. Are the martyrs aware of what's going on in the world? I wouldn't be too sure about that. But what I am sure about is that they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who, want, who were going to be killed would be killed. The message is coming to God as his timetable. There are going to be martyrs to the end of time. God has decreed that they'll be and who they will be and when it will happen. These things are written down here, not for us to fix dates, but to remind us of the ultimate victory of Christ over all his foes and about the cost involved in following Jesus and being faithful to him, especially when the tide is out and the screw is being turned. It's so easy to just go through each day when everything's rosy and it's peace all around and nobody will say boo to you as a Christian, but when we are in the crucible, what would we do? This passage is not telling us about the date of the Lord's return. It's about the state and fate of the world at large, but also of the eternal security of the people of God, especially those who've been martyred. Four horsemen bringing such chaos to the world. But there are faithful martyrs. And they're waiting until other faithful martyrs join them. And Jesus says, enough. One last thing. Four horsemen. There's a lot more we could talk about it. Faithful martyrs. A furious lamb. What comes next takes us right up to the final stage of history when history will have run its course in the opening of the sixth seal. It's a picture of cosmic upheaval. Something, brothers and sisters, is going to happen that's so radical that the world has never seen anything like it before. This is imagery that the Bible reserves for the end of the world. In other places of the book of the Revelation, it's the height of folly to say that X means Y, but here it's unmistakable. This is the end. As we know it, an end of the cosmos, as we know it, it's all about the final showdown when Jesus comes to judge the world in righteousness. What happens here is of cataclysmic proportions. You should read this and just meditate on it. This is another symbolic apocalyptic picture of the judgment day when God will pour out his wrath on a world that has rejected his son and persecuted his church. Now, I know there are people in evangelical churches. This is not one of them. I know there are people in evangelical churches. If you talk like this, you would never be asked back again. Hendrickson writing on this passage in his commentary, he says this, this describes the one great catastrophe at the end of the age, 
the dread and terror, the awe, the consternation of that day is pictured here under the twofold symbolism of a crashing universe and a thoroughly frightened human race. And you'll get some people piping up and say, hang on a wee minute, John. God is love. Yes, he is. He sent his own son to save us. God is also holy. And he will call everybody to give an account. The language here is a literary device John's using to impress us with the terrible reality that's going to unfold. Peter mentions it a wee bit when he talks about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the melting of the elements in the heat while the Lord's people look for a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. Listen to this language. It was a great earthquake. Sun turned black like sackcloth, made of goat hair. Whole moon turned blood red. Stars in the sky fell to the earth. The late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave, every free man, hidden caves and among the rocks and the mountains. They called on the mountains and the rocks. Fallen us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath is come. And who can stand? See, the problem for people here is there's no place for them to hide. This is a picture of dread and despair. It's a picture of confusion and consternation. It's terrifying. It's frightening. If only people could find a refuge, even in death. But that's not possible. If only they could hide in the caves or the rocks or the mountains. But that's not possible. If only the mountains and the rocks could fall on them and annihilate them. But that's not possible. What do they want to hide from? A lamb. I'm not a farmer. A lamb. The wrath of the lamb. This is no ordinary lamb. This lamb is a lion. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's triumphed over sin and death and hell. He's triumphed over Satan and his legions. He's triumphed over everything. This is the day of judgment coming. This is the one when God will this is the day when God will judge the secrets of all men by Jesus Christ. It's a day of reckoning. The curtain is falling. It's the great day of the wrath of Almighty God and the Lamb. And once that day dawns, the door of grace will be closed forever. On that day, all our earthly treasures will count for nothing. On that day, all earthly greatness of any and every kind will count for nothing. On that day, the kings of the earth the princes, the generals, the rich men, the mighty men, and everyone else who has ever lived, who hasn't fled from the wrath to come, will face this. They will have lost the opportunity to flee anywhere. The big question is, who can stand when this unfolds? Who can be safe and secure? 
The answer in its fullness is given us in the next chapter, which we'll leave until tonight. But before the judgment falls, before the seventh seal is opened, we need to know who can stand. We're dealing with God here. Who can stand? Do you know what John, not John, Thomas, Boston once said? To be damned by him who came to save sinners is to be doubly damned. If you prefer it from the lips of J.C. Ryle, he puts it even more graphically. It is not possible to speak too much of Jesus, but it is possible to speak too little about hell. I know we're evangelicals. I have been so blessed just being amongst you and so is my wife. You have got something special here. Maintain that unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I just want you to know, does this come into our thinking? How do we see these people who live next door to us and down the street from us and around us? They're either going to heaven or they're going to hell. That's what this chapter is telling you. Who's talking like this? Jesus. Read the chapter and you'll see. Father, wipe out anything that I've said that is not from you. Help us to see the truth in your word and help us to live in the light of it as your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.